Welcome everybody out to episode 107 of Utah in the Weeds. My name is Tim Pickett and I'm the host. Here's a podcast about cannabis and cannabis culture. And we're expanding the program today after discussing with Alyssa Reed about the uh, Utah's Uplift program, the subsidy program that helps low income and terminally ill patients right here in Utah. Uh, If you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to episode 106. This episode is an episode, uh, a discussion with Matt Hoffman, who is from Michigan, spent some time uh, growing cannabis and uh, selling, growing and producing and selling cannabis there in a legal gray area, spent some time in jail, actually, and after that experience, decided to, to turn everything on its head and start one of the first and only nonprofit cannabis companies uh, in the United States. Talk to him about that experience and what he's doing for the cannabis culture and the cannabis community and people who want to work in cannabis space. This is a, a, an interesting conversation with somebody with a, an entirely different perspective, in my opinion, about cannabis. He doesn't hold back. Uh, his opinions about what's happening in cannabis and and his experience. Great. Um, We cover a lot of stuff, too, in this conversation. From a housekeeping perspective, summer is well underway. If you need to to renew your medical cannabis card or you're having trouble finding medical cannabis access in Utah, head over to utahmarijuana.org. You can find out tons of information there. And lots of information about uh, specific conditions, the Utah program. You can find out a lot more on our YouTube channel, Discover Marijuana. And this uh, this next few weeks, we'll be giving away, uh, have a big giveaway on our YouTube channel. Uh, so pay attention to that. Subscribe where you can if, you, if you'd like. Comment. Uh, we always love to hear your comments and answer all of them. Uh, again, my name's Tim Pickett. Enjoy this conversation with Matt Hoffman. But yeah, I joke. I joke with sometimes with my staff, like the only requirement to be adjacent to cannabis or in the cannabis business. One of the main requirements is you have to have microwaves in your office big enough to nuke the laptops if the black suburbans show up. <laughs> You're not right. Wrong. Like. You're not like you always have to have stuff like that in the back of your mind. And it's stories like yours that that kind of like solidify it in people's minds. And it's, you know, you think about where we are now. And I I'm 36. I thought where we'd be was when I was into my 50s, well into my 50s. If you were told 10 years ago that we were going to be here, I mean, I would have been like, fuck you. There is no way yeah, totally fine. legal. It's going to be <laughs> legal in Utah and any of that. Right. Right. But then to think like you and I laugh about nuking laptops and having go bags and all this other stuff. But like, that was my reality. Like it, it's movie, it's movie stuff. And it's things that I think that people that are part of the culture now, they're like, no way that's real. I'm like, yeah, that's real. That's, that's how the industry functioned back then. And back then wasn't, but five years ago. I know that. So, okay. So, okay. So introduce yourself and, um, I, I'm, I just want to like, I just want to hear the whole thing really. Okay. So hi, I'm Matt Hoffman. I am a legacy cannabis owner and operator. I grew and owned a dispensary for a number of years in Western Michigan. After my tenure and time for time served for for participating in the cannabis industry, I got out and realized that I was totally fucked because I couldn't pursue a license that <gasps> because now. you're a and because so you're a, a felon. I I I, I, I sidestepped the felon. Thank goodness. Um, yeah, but they they were they stacked me up with three of them, and I was facing seven years. Um, I got I got off pretty easy, but my life was in shambles regardless. And I wasn't able to do what I had, you know, honed my hone my skills over over the years doing. You know, we we first started, I was if you bought an eighth from me, you get a quarter of seeds and stems and then probably a couple pieces of sugar swag <laughs> weed. This is in Michigan. But 
this is in Western Michigan. So this is the, this is over here by Lake Michigan. Okay. And, um, but you know, over the years of, of just living, eating, sleeping, and breathing cannabis, uh, we end up winning back to back to back caregiver cups in 2015 and ended up doing 1.3 million a year in, in revenue through our dispensary, which we started with our family's 401k of $37,000. How does that work? Um, so how do you, you know, get we, your family to, to say, oh, I know this is a well, really great idea, Matt. You should take our retirement they were, and invest in a federally illegal business and grow weed. Ah, uh, I think charm and persuasion is, is a gift <laughs> that I have. <laughs> and apparently I have an abundance of it because I convinced my family to cash in their, their 401k and start a, a legal enterprise with me. Um, but, it, you know, it starts as any other, any other pitch is feed people, make sure they haven't, they have to go to the bathroom and they're, they've had a relatively good day and just have a conversation. And it, it went, Hey, how do you think life's going to go? And my mom said, Oh, I think I'm going to fall over dead at my desk. And I said, well, I, I'm probably going to work in a factory and, and die broken and standing in a machine. But here's this, this thing that is, is legal now in Michigan. And I think we could have a go at it. And I mean, you know, the drug dealers, do it. We're smarter than them. We're educated. So we could do it. And, uh, we did. Yeah. <laughs> and failed for three years straight, you know, working, both of us ended up working two jobs and, and building our grow and messing up and learning. And, and there were resources back then. And, but we just kept at it and it, it, it just, it paid off. It took about eight years to, to get that million, but we did. And after that, I, you can't do what I did in the time and in the place that I was doing it and not get in trouble. It's just, it's, it was impossible. And so I got in trouble and then went away for a while and got out and thought, okay, well, what do I do? I'm fucked. Um, and we, we had an idea for a workforce development agency, like a indeed of weed. So we started a tech company. I've never run a tech company before. I had no idea what I was doing and, uh, it blew up wildly successful. <laughs> Holy crap. And we were inundated with people asking for help. Can you help us make a resume? Can, can, should I bring weed to an interview? Should I bring a plant to an interview? Should I wear a tie? Uh, will my skills translate? Help me, help me, help. Wow, and this is something I didn't know about you. That's, this is, what year was this? Oh, this was like 2017. When you're, you're, you're just... You kind of get online, you create this kind of tech company that focuses on the cannabis industry, jobs, connecting people who need to work together. Uh, yeah, I mean, the yep. Indeed of Weed is just a kind of a good way yeah. to put it. And then people would pay to list their jobs. Yep, yep. And what happened is we ended up making more money off evaluations and headhunting than we did off, off the technology. The technology was an aggregate for people to come to us because it didn't exist at that point in time. And there, there wasn't people that were really out and knowledgeable uh, that could, that could talk with another grower and say, Hey, this guy knows what they're talking about, or they say they're here and they're yeah. really here. And we think they'd be a good here. So we did a lot of evaluations and, and, and placing people. Boy, I feel like that's that was, still really a necessary thing. Cause I still run into people and no offense if you're one of the, if like, I guess nobody that I would, I wouldn't, I'm not going to pick anybody out, but look, I've in the short period of time I've been in this space, I've met a lot of people and there is a significant number of people who will tell you they are God's gift growing the plant. They know everything there is to know about the science, the growing, the cycles, the education, they're amazing. And really, when you dig yeah. into it, they're, they're really just, I mean, they could barely grow a tomato, you know, like compared yeah. to somebody who really knows, who really can do it up, set up the grow facility, put it all together, put the humidity, all the machines and the equipment and all that. There's just so much more to it. But it seems like that would be a really necessary thing to do those valuations where you can take somebody and say, okay, well, give me your resume and I'll tell you where you actually fit. 
Well, you know, and, and it morphed where we had a guy, I was, I was actually talking to him today, uh, one of our first alumni, Dane. He was one of those guys that uh, couldn't get a job. He, the, the word master grower is thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot. It's a self-appointed title. And there are, there are people that are master growers, but they would never call themselves that. But I would. I would say Dane is, is de facto a master grower. And I know that because I know my business and I've grown for more than a decade, but also because he proved out. And it, it, he came to us where we ended up rolling that for-profit Indeed of Weed company was called handgrown.jobs. We rolled that into a nonprofit called Our Cannabis because the demand was so overwhelming for people like Dane who could, could, he didn't really talk the talk. He just walked the walk, but he needed to be able to come in and get a, get a job and health insurance and W-2s and all the things that, that a lot of people in traditional industries kind of take for granted. And when he came to us, he had no bullshit. He had an 11 page resume (laughs) and uh, it read like a novel and he had been looking for a job for a year. And it was, it was readily apparent to us and my team within five minutes of talking to him, like, whoa, this guy's awesome. But the problem is, is that a, a recruiter, a headhunter, an HR person, they, they would never read the novel that he wrote as his resume. And, they, and, and he didn't know how to get their attention. We, we do. Uh, my mom's background, her master's degree is in education and workforce development. She worked at multiple nonprofit agencies helping refugees. Uh, find work. She doesn't speak a second language, by the way. She helped mentally and physically disabled adults find work and do other job training. She did program development for the state of Michigan. So like, this is kind of our thing. (laughs) Um, So we said, okay, well, we have this cannabis background and we've got all these people that are asking for help. And then we have mom's workforce development pedigree. I mean, she's been doing it for 30 years. So let's Let's start a, a nonprofit that focuses on helping people write resumes and prep for interviews and go through the negotiation process, which most people don't even know that they can do, and support them throughout their careers. And that was formed in 2018. And we've we've rolled everything into that. And it's it's a robust suite of services that that helps people now. So it's built on her professional background and and our professional background in, in the cannabis field. And um that's that's what I do now is uh, chair and and then fundraise major gifts for for cannabis charities. Are you? How did you get a five hundred one c three approved? <laughs> Fuck if I know. I it took four years. You know, it took four because normally what what people don't realize is normally when you set up a 501c3, it's a six month waiting period. So you do the application process, you turn it in, and then you got to wait six months. It's something I think, and and I don't know why. I'm sure there's reasons the government's like, you can't start a nonprofit. If you have a million dollars, you need to sell all your stocks and put it in a nonprofit, whatever. Tomorrow, you can't just do that like a normal business. You have to have this whole the whole application process and then typically wait six months. But in the cannabis space, it's not. And it took you four years to put this together to get it approved. I I don't think that I don't think that I need all my fingers to count the registered 501c3 cannabis nonprofits in the world. There just there just aren't that many because it's because it's incredibly difficult to do. There are so many hoops that you have to jump through. Just let's just say if you just wanted to be a 501c3, that's an arduous task well, in sure. of itself. But for us, uh, they had a lot of questions and they moved with their own timetable. And then there was a pandemic. And you know, so uh, we got we got lost in there. But it was a lot of us on the phone saying they would go, okay, your name is our cannabis. And it was it was a debate between the, the founders and the board and I, and, you know, they thought, Hey, let's do like Americans for prosperity. And I said, fuck that. Uh, can I cuss on your show? Or yeah. No? Podcasts is podcasts are uh, okay. no rules, basically, you know, no rules. I mean, we haven't broken enough rules yet to get in trouble. I, sh- I should put it that way. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so I said, okay, well, you know, uh, fuck that. 
we're, we're planting the flag at the top of the hill. We're going to call ourselves our cannabis because fuck them. Yeah. Like we're going to do what we're going to do. We're obeying all the right. rules and it's don't like, this isn't illegal. What we're doing it. We, we can call it whatever we want. And you know, we have this conversation all the time. It was future forward. I was looking forward and I was saying, Hey, in 20 years, this, this thing that is a liability because it is a fucking liability right now. This thing in 20 years is going to be a massive asset to be that explicit, to be that at the top of the hill, planting the flag. That is that that's over the horizon posturing. And I said, well, you know, I'm from cannabis. So, and we've, we fought with the with state and local and federal government. Like I'm not really afraid of anything or anybody because I fought the biggest guys in the room and they pummeled yeah. me, but I didn't die. So I went, well, you know, so what? Let's do it. And we still have challenges with it, but in my view, it was worth it. My board still disagrees with me, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as far as like the naming and like trying to like go yeah. all the way. Yeah. They said, Matt, why do you, why, why do you want to go pick a fight? And I said, because I can, you know, because I can, and because we can win and because we're winning guys, we're winning. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I think is lost on, on cannabis in general is, at some point in time, we stop asking and just start conquering. And it, it was it was, a, it was a conquering mindset. It's a winning mindset of we're going to call ourselves something explicit like our cannabis, because it won't be taboo in a very short in a very short order. I mean, when we started this this interview, one of the first things we said was, "Imagine ten years ago where we'd be today," and we're only accelerating from this point forward. We are. We are. So, and we have to remember that we are only accelerating from this point forward, despite the periodic, what looks as setbacks, right? That's there. And there has to be, I, so I work a lot in, um, I do a lot of medical evaluations. I do a lot of, see a lot of patients. That's, that's our primary, that's like my primary thing. I teach people how to smoke weed for a living and, nice. uh, <laughs> uh, and it is, it's, it's, extremely rewarding. And I come from a medical background and I teach at the Utah University of Utah Medical School, their cannabis program. Mm. And when we go up there, I have to really focus on the, it is not all um, awesome, right? Cannabis isn't all the answers to all of your problems. There is a significant like psychosis. There's a significant correlation between psychosis and cannabis, especially in young people. And we don't know the answer. And, but we know there's this five times more likely thing that's correlated between heavy cannabis use and young people developing psychosis. And yeah, I like, look, that might be a setback for the industry, but if you don't acknowledge it, it just, it will come up as a skeleton later and you're going to be dealing with right. it later if you're not dealing with it now. And and you can't get legitimacy for all of the wonderful things that it does in opioid reduction and benzo reduction and sleep medicine reduction. And like literally 79% of our patients use less prescription medications within six months, right? Well, you, I can't get to that legitimacy without acknowledging the, the hiccups. But you are absolutely right, in my opinion. It is, it's accelerating. So I don't know. I, I, I respect your board, but I, but I tend to <laughs> lean on your side, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but that's the point of a board is feedback. You, you go in a closed room and, and you, you yep. argue it out and it, there's decorum and it's, it's professional, but it, it at times it's passionate and, and, but that's the point yeah, of the board. <laughs> for sure. So how big, so you, you started out, are you into all the states? As 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 far as what I do ex exclusively, everything is focused on the nonprofit. I don't I don't grow, I don't sell, I don't do that anymore. I don't have the I don't have the desire. And just a real quick aside, I don't have desire because anybody could do that. And more students that come through the programs, more people that are trained up and mentored, anybody could grow weed and do it consistently and do a fine job. Okay not anybody can do what I do because they don't know what I know and they're not in the position that I'm in. So I'm solely focused on cannabis philanthropy, impacting people's lives and through workforce development and, and enriching them that way, finding meaningful work 
And so to answer your question, we are all across North America. We have worked with people in Australia, in India, all across Europe. Uh, we don't have the capacity right now for Spanish to support Spanish um, yeah. Spanish job seekers. We have we have in the past. I brought my aunt as a is a fluent Spanish speaker. She's a Spanish teacher. Joined it for like twenty years. Uh, we brought her in to help some Spanish speakers. Um, but yeah, we're 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 all over the place. Any anywhere that um, there's a cannabis there's there's a medical or recreational cannabis program. We are forming relationships to with state agencies and and making them aware that a resource like ours exists and programs with proven track records are there to support the workforce. That's that's really are you um, so when you go into a state like here in Utah, would you go to the regulators and say, hey, we we have a platform that not only will will connect people, professionals, and you want us really to be successful because you want a professional program. But do, do you also <laughs> offer with the um, with the classes in education, it kind of standardizes that level of um, what is it right? Like the bud tenders, the patient advocates or or the people who work in the dispensaries. Are you training them as well? God, no, <laughs> no, we, we've just veered right away from that because we looked at it and went, okay, the universities are going to come in and we would like to be a resource in, in what we know uh, and, and kind of flip a coin in the jar collectively uh -huh. for that. Uh, the, the, the standardizations and the certificates and all that is in my view, too big of a thing for any one individual to tackle. I think, so like when it comes to accountants, if I went to the University of Nebraska and I got an accounting degree, it would be acknowledged in yep. Miami, where with certificates and things like that in cannabis, that is more often than not the case. And our view was, let's let academia catch up and then be a resource yeah. for them and let them collectively use their might to, to tie everything yeah. together. We've, we've um, run into that same type of thing but you're constantly getting it's a, i'm sure in the beginning people were constantly saying you should develop a program you should develop education you have all these people that need your services they need more you know you could charge for it I'm like yeah but i don't know it it does yeah. it's not standardized but then you gotta go sell it you gotta go sell it you gotta standardize standardize it you gotta compete yeah and, and that's just not your that's why, not the wheelhouse right you want to be in no and and why would somebody want um, a red cup uh, certificate when they could go to the University of Michigan? Yeah. Yeah. When you right. speak of like master <laughs> growers. So in Utah, we have the Utah State University, which is one of the best agriculture uh, and like farming and growing universities probably in the world. Um, they just have really, really good programs. Why not go there, right? Like right. they're going to figure right. it out. Exactly. They're going to develop a program. Right. Probably ought to just let them do it. Well, and what and what the what the savvy universities are doing is they're finding guys like me that are keen on education and and sharing the knowledge, and they're bringing us in to be guest lecturers, which I've done for a number of years, or uh, the, on the other side of the fence, the guys from my side are getting their credentials up so they can become educators mm -hmm. themselves at some of these programs. That's where you get people that have real world practical in the field experience that can come into an institutional framework and provide the maximum value for the students. That's exciting to me. So when you talk about Utah and their ag program, I'm like, man, you if there were some guys that that were legacy growers yeah. that would come in, that'd be cool. <laughs> but 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 the but the state would have to get the license, which is starting to happen. You know, it's, it, what is it? Miss, Mississippi had a, a cultivation license, a research license for a number of years, but we're starting to see that where some of the universities at from the state level are being given 
special licenses, special uses to actually cultivate cannabis at the facility. At a facility. Right. Mississippi, yeah, you yeah. use that example. They're the they were producing like a hundred marijuana cigarettes, they call them, you know, for the for the veterans. And they'd they'd ship them all over the country. You'd get your allotment of a hundred hundred marijuana cigarettes. Mississippi <laughs> weed. So I don't know what type of research they still do. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, I think Penn state has some, uh, research in medicine that they're doing. Yeah. I know North Carolina is hemp. Yeah. I know that. Utah has tried to, to incorporate and change their laws to allow the university of Utah to do some medical research. Cause we have a big, uh, cancer research facility here. Um, but I mean, you kind of fit well into all these places. Cause I'm thinking, well, where do you get the person who knows how to set that up, right? I mean, I, I mean, you kind of have to yeah. do you. Well, and and the way that it it was done, and the way that it's still done now is, if you want the guy, and I'm 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 not the guy, but let's just say, I'm the guy. If you want the guy, guess what? That the guy is getting mega bucks either because he's either uh, a part of the leadership of of either a regional or a multi-state operator or he's at the helm of his own company or he's still underground. So there's not many incentives for that guy to come and be a part of anything because to be a part of cannabis is the pursuit of, of uh, ferocious independence. We're, we're a wild bunch. That's kind of why we do what we do. Um, so the prospect of coming in and playing well with others is not one for most guys. So what we've done is we found people that have this particular skill set, and then we match them and we fill in their weaknesses with other people's strengths. And where you could have the guy come in and do three roles, you'll have four or five other people come in, assemble, and do the role of of the guy. Interesting um, way to look at it because I, I, I mean, and, and I wouldn't have thought about it this way, but the, all the people that I know who you could hire to do this. Yeah. They're not interested. they already have either their own thing underground on the secondary market as I would consider it. Right. And, or they're in a multi-state <laughs> operation and they're, you know, making great money on the, on that side. Yep. Um, and. Or they're in jail. Yeah. Or they're in jail. What was that? In jail. So what was that like? How long were you in jail? Do you want to talk? You, um, do you talk about this a lot? Yeah. Nah, not really. <laughs> um, I was there for four months and to be honest, it was, it was a vacation. It was wonderful. I mean, it was hell. Don't get me wrong. It was hell. But at the time my, my company had just, we had just crested and I was, I was working, I was working so much that the only time that I would get a break was I, I drove a Lincoln and um, I got one of those monthly passes to go, you know, get a car wash. And the only time that I would get a break was I would go to the car wash and turn off my phone, turn off my radio. And I just close my eyes and go to the car wash. Well, I did it so much that I actually removed the paint off my car. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you know, I, I was so burned out. I was so, you know, because it was a, it was a criminal enterprise. So it wasn't like I could bring on, I had a staff of 12 people that I paid cash and, you know, that were like my ride or die people, but I couldn't, I couldn't scale because of what, the nature of my business. Now it, it being a criminal enterprise, it was an operationally gray area. Um, so there were no protections there were, but there really weren't incentives unless the local or state or federal police wanted you. Um, and so it was, a. It was, I was burned. I mean, I was just, I was just strapped to the outside of a rocket ship. So when they, they came and got me, you know, it was, everything was in place. Everything was fine. It ran without me, but you know, I, I ended up getting a job in jail where I go and make 19 pots of coffee for the East Grand Rapids road commission and clean their bathroom and read a book every day. And for me, it was, it, I, I will never stopped. I would have never stopped. I would have had a stroke or a heart attack 
and uh, probably died from the stress. So going to jail and, and having to fist fight somebody or watch people fist fight over remote control or, or play cards or watch people steal and fuck each other up. It, I didn't care because I was from the world, you know, I was from the underground. So that was unfortunately like that is a currency in that world. So it didn't, it didn't phase me, but I didn't have the, the burden and the stress because my team was at the helm. I had strong people. The team was at the helm of the business, which ended up being taken. Um, I think the, the, the effect that that had on me was one, it, it, it forced me to take a break, but I didn't get the punishment until afterwards when civil asset forfeiture was leveraged and all of my assets were taken. I don't know how they didn't take my house. I think it was because I was remodeling at the time. They thought that it was like a fucking crack (laughs) house or something. (laughs) Um, So they didn't take my house, which is great, but they took everything else. Yeah. So when I came out, I was, I was financially destitute and I was, I was, you know, I don't listen to, to good advice. I act on it and I was very lucky or fortunate or blessed, whatever you want to call it early, early on to get tied in with some very smart people in finance and and legal. And they said, Matt, we love you, bud, but you're going to burn. So you need to, you know, go bury some cash in the yard type of stuff. And they, they showed me how to protect some of my assets. So I was able to restart when I got back out and it was the most gnarly, brutal thing that I've ever gone through. And I thought, Oh my God, I have, I have all the advantages of the world and I am haggard. Like my guts are hanging out. I'm, I'm, I'm wrecked. And it took years for us to get back on our feet. And I thought, other people that don't have even a fraction of what I have are so fucked. It's not even funny. And these are my people. Like, what can we do to help mm-hmm. them? And that's where the idea for, for the indeed of weed came through. But also it was, I, all I'd ever done professionally was, was grow a cannabis company. So I didn't know how to do anything else. So it was, it was shocking for me to, to, to go, okay, well, the state of Michigan's issuing licenses. I'm, I'm connected. I'm respected. I, I have resources. I, I am, um, I'm a known entity and people are throwing money around left and right, but I couldn't even own a fraction of a share of a company and it just killed mm. me. Uh, so I thought, okay, well in service of myself, well, how can I service others? And I just went down a different, a different path in life that is so, it's so, challenging. One, running a cannabis nonprofit is the most difficult thing I've ever done, which is fun to me. And it's been so enriching because I can share what I know and the resources that I have and help other people live better lives. If I was just growing weed and selling weed, yeah, I'd, I'd have a private jet and do whatever I want, but it, it's just money. It's just, you know, at some point in time, and I've been at this point, at some point in time, you make so much money, you don't know what to do with it. But I couldn't enjoy my life because I was too focused on making money. So to, to answer your question, what jail did for me was it reset me. Yeah. Sounds like it almost, so it almost just completely reset the, the, yeah. the paradigm that you were living in. Yeah. Because and I, yet I really, didn't, I've always been able to kept you. What's interesting about that is it, it changed your outlook, your paradigm, but it doesn't, but it didn't change your skill set necessarily. Right. Because you knew how to you no. knew how to grow cannabis. You knew how to grow uh, a business in that way. I understood. I understood all the components of, of of business, and I mean from the from the branding to the you know to branding like this, yeah, nice to to the marketing to customer relations. I mean all of it, all the things that that a business needs. I learned and. I, I wasn't too worried because I understood the systems of business and enterprise and I knew that I could make money one way or another. I was just, uh, I was angry for quite a while because I was excellent yeah. at what I did because I, because I paid my dues and then to be able to, it, it'd be like, and this is not, I'm, I'm not saying I'm Michael Jordan of weed, but this, this is the first one I've read. It would be like Michael Jordan having to sit on the bench and watch others play. It just killed me. What uh, was the rules that then, made it so you can't, because I think these rules exist in Utah and in most states, uh, but 
what what were the rules that made it so you couldn't be a license holder in Michigan? It was pretty cut and dry. They just said if you've got if you've got a conviction of any type, then you're excluded from holding any any portion of a license. And it was at the time, it was so that I couldn't even be an employee without going before a board and and having a board review and then approve or deny my employee status. Yep. This is very, very similar to the Utah law. Originally, they wouldn't let anybody be any part of it. And then they modified it, I believe, last year to allow people uh, to work in the industry, maybe not be an owner. I don't know if that ever changed or if that has changed yet, but, but at least now you can work in the space. It's incremental. But but it is so tragic that you could get in trouble for something that was really a legal gray area at one point or against the law, but that but literally you want to do the same exact thing legally and you're good at it, but you can't because right. you did it before. Like you right. Literally your experience is what is keeping you from the job. <laughs> so, right. so my experience qualifies me for the job, but excludes me from yeah. having it. Keeps people in yeah. the black market. It does. It does. It does. But you know what's interesting is we're starting to see, we're starting to see companies, not just mom and pops. We're starting to see companies shuttering. Uh, Terrapin, Terrapin had a a location here in in, in Michigan. They, they have a few, but they liquidated all of their assets. They employees came in and said, Hey, uh, Friday's going to be your last day. Will you, will you work through Friday? And they, by Friday, they shuttered the store and they completely removed themselves from, from the Michigan market. You know, we're seeing, uh, the, we're starting to see the cooling down of the market. And it's not because of the demand in weed. The demand in weed is still, is still up there. It's that, Bills are coming due and runways have run out and yields are not what they meant to be. And then price per pound is down and all the market factors are starting to come into play. And the people that are uh, able operators are doing just fine, but everybody else is suffering. And for me, I've got, I've got a dozen people right now that were just laid off and I'm going, oh my God, the, the companies that are doing well don't have high turnover because people are happily working there, but they're not hiring either. Right. So we've got all these experienced people that we take them from one sunken ship and put them on another burning one. Like, so it's a, it's a very tumultuous period that we're entering. And you feel like we're entering it just now. We're just coming into it. I, I, I feel like I can we've see, been in you it. feel like we've been in it for a little while. We've been in it for about six months. When you see like the cure leaf um, stock, graph is just one big slippery slide down you know i mean i love those guys and i've got some friends who are high you know they're great great people but uh but the stock price is just getting crushed um yeah i think it was um yeah yeah a, 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 i don't know if it's a reckoning but <laughs> well it kind of it kind of is i mean investors will look at the tech money you know uber what did i read the other day uber subsidized all of the all the rides we've been taking for so long now, hey, you got to pay yeah. for that ride. You know, what used to cost you $15 to get downtown is now 40 because that's what it cost. Right. That's always yep. what it costs. We've just been subsidizing it. Now we got to pay the piper a little. So, you know, what's, what's interesting is I was talking to somebody about this earlier today and I said, look, it's what you guys are experiencing in, in, the, in the legal market is, has been at play in the the black market forever. So, you know, the, the guys like me just, ah, uh, oh man. Okay. I'm not going to say something crass. Um, oh, okay. Yep. Uh, it's unfortunate what's happening to the staff. That's all I'm going to say. The, the people that rode into town and thought they were going to just show all the cannabis people how to do it. Uh, they're a laughing stock. And the, the problem is, is that they did they weren't wise enough to listen and heed the advice of the people that have been around. And it's it's destroying people's lives. And that's that's not funny to me. Um a, a bro losing his money, that's funny to me. Without the consequences, 
that's funny. But um, I, I think what what's gonna what will happen is we'll start to see companies do things that are unique to them. So, for example, I would if I was operating. I would only carry what I grew and I would only grow what my people wanted because that's what I found success doing. I didn't grow everything. I grew what my people wanted, several thousand people, and my people solicited feedback and we said, okay, ticket on the ticket on the Excel sheet. People like Night Nurse. So we grew the crap out of Night Nurse. We grew only what our people wanted and we stopped taking on new customers. And we only focused on servicing the people that we had. And then we focused on servicing them so well that they never thought about going anywhere else. Ah, old school business. Well, this is the, uh, instead of trying to take over the world, just try to take care right. of your community. Right. The, right. the, the local doc down if, the street, he doesn't need 14 providers. He just needs to take care of the people that he takes care of. And he can still live in a nice house and go on vacation twice a year. And that's okay. Well, but if we think about if we think about conquest, it, it, it conquest takes decades. It doesn't happen fast. And the ones that that try to do it fast, they overextend. I I love playing the board game Risk, and you get the guy that he get a good roll and he'll just run across the board. Okay, cool. He spreads something. I'm just going to eat him up. I won't push into his territory, but I'll I'll make him pay for his mistake. Yep. It's it's understanding that keeping the cost of goods grown low, keeping the cost of goods sold low, keeping a consistent and happy customer base builds strength. And then when I want to move on something, when when a company is, is begging an investor to come and buy their, their $4 million investment for $300,000, okay, you know, here's the cash. Thanks for the assets. Good rinse. Hey, you know what? You're really good at this. Go start another company. <laughs> I was talking to you. Call me when you needed and call me when you need another yeah. buyout. Yeah. So it's been yeah, it's something the, where it's the Medman story, the um right, that get too big too quick and can't can't keep up with everything. Yeah. But the truth is is that growing cannabis is incredibly lucrative. Anybody who's not making money in this is doing it totally wrong. <laughs> it's totally wrong. Um, but it's it's understanding having a, 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 a growth plan for the business itself because even when times are lean, people still buy. Even when the price is low, people still buy. But it's it's having that plan and then just running it for years and that, that gets people to the position that they can start to make bigger moves mm -hmm. over time. So it's, it's a matter of perspective. If somebody was going to go out and uh, like, what do you think is needed in the cannabis space now that you've been kind of on both sides, really the for and the nonprofit side? I mean, do you have any, do you have any advice really for the whole industry now that you've seen both sides? Is it, there something other than you're growing too fast? And here's the reckoning. Um, put your money where your mouth is. I mean, we've put year year to date. <laughs> I wish it was year to date. <laughs> um, so far to date, the Hoffman family has put in over 350,000 of our dollars into our nonprofit. We put our money where our mouth is. We don't, we don't just say, Hey, you know, we're, we're, we might do good later. We gave when it, we gave when it was a pound of flesh for us and we kept giving. And I think that the people that are new to the culture don't understand the generosity of cannabis. People that are from cannabis are incredibly giving in time and money and in spirit. And that's something that is lost on the new age of licensees. They'll say, Matt, we love what you're doing, but we just, we're just not in a position to give. And I, I have a response for that. And, and the, the the one that I'm going to say now is not it, but it, every dollar matters. It's the act of giving. It's the act of charity. It's the act of supporting other people who, while one person is struggling, while I may be struggling, there may be somebody who's having a harder go than I am. And the cannabis community, because of the nature of the war on drugs, we supported each other. Yep. That's something that's lost on this, on, on this group. They don't, they don't understand that it's not 
we can't give $100,000. We can't give a million dollars. Okay, can you give $200? Can you give 50 bucks? Can you give a dollar today? What can you do today to help somebody yeah. else? They're, they say nothing. Nothing. And I say, oh, okay, well, that tells me what I need to know about the culture and how these people understand or don't understand the community of cannabis. Because it's not about taking. It's about giving. Yeah. And the, 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 most, the, most of the companies uh, are not, not into giving. Interesting. I, I can totally understand where you're coming from. Uh, I have much less experience in the cannabis industry than you. I have much more experience. My background is, you know, all medicine and, um, that even that, that industry is very reticent to give back. Uh, you know, they know how to make money in medicine. But think about, think about the risks that you've taken and the stigma that you have faced doing what you do now. That's a sacrifice for you. You, you've sacrificed whether you know it or not. You've given whether you know it or not. That to, to endeavor into the space is a personal risk. And that's, that's part of the charity. That's part of the generosity is you say, Hey, you know what? I may, I may have, there may be ram, ramifications sure. for this action, but I'm, I'm going to go out anyway. there. I'm going to put my, uh, put the, put the flag on top of the hill and say, Hey, you need good info on cannabis. You can come through me. You need a job in the cannabis space. I'm Matt Hoffman. Here, here you go. You, you need to learn how to smoke joints. You can call, call Tim. I'm Tim. <laughs> right. Call Tim. I'll, I'll show you exactly how to do it. And, and, I'll, <laughs> and, uh, maybe I'll tweak that just a little bit and help you feel better. You know, and that's, yeah, I, I like this. Uh, I like the idea. I think you're, you've definitely made me think about every dollar, right? The charity needs to happen now, right? There, right. As, as you're going, not when you've reached the end. Like, right. It's, it's now. Uh, any advice for somebody who wants to start a nonprofit? In, in or adjacent to the cannabis space other than uh, good okay. luck. Yeah, yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, so a couple things. Go and read every... Okay, this, this advice is for board members or would-be founders, okay? You're not going to be able to, and if you can, if I'm wrong, if I eat my words, then bully for you. But for the most part, you're not going to be able to get hire a professional fundraiser for for just a couple of reasons but one is you can't afford them and two professional fundraisers can they're like first round sport draft picks they can go do anything they want to do they're not going to want to come and work at some plucky startup that's got no money and ask me how i know <laughs> <laughs> um so my my first bit of advice would be don't spend don't spend a dollar until you've done a couple things. One is go and talk to one, see if there is a problem to be solved. And if you're the person to solve it, if there's somebody else that's already solving that problem, then just go and volunteer and, and help them. So make sure there's a clear problem, demonstrable problem that you can clearly solve. The next thing is go and build a board. Talk to, you don't want to board more than 12 to 15 people. But go and talk to a dozen people and say, hey, I have this idea, this problem. I'm the guy to solve it. I think you'd be a great a great contributor to that. Would you consider if I did this coming on and being a board member? And, and then before you do that, go and read what the role of a board member is and then lay out a couple of expectations. And the real point of a board is counsel and, and those passionate debates, but also it's they are the people that can introduce you to people who may be open to supporting the cause. Okay. <clears throat> Raising money is the, the, the crux of it. So if it were, well, it was me. So what I did is I read every single fundraising book there was, and then I hounded as many people as I could. And I just annoyed them with page after page after page of questions until they, I think that they, respected me enough to take me seriously and they would engage with me. And then I took classes with a lady named Amy Eisenstein 
I took all of her classes, all her podcasts, all of her one-on-ones. It was the best money that I ever spent. Um, go there, there are universities, the Lilly School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, the St. Mary's School of Philanthropy at Minnesota. Go and 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 study, actually spend the time and do the coursework and learn how these function because a nonprofit is a totally okay. So dolphins and giraffes are mammals, but they have nothing in common right. other than their mammals. That's that's where the commonalities end for for profits and nonprofits. And just because I was a, a beast at my for profit enterprise, <laughs> the things that made me really good at that at that business were actually hindrances as a nonprofit operator. Um, So learn, learn, like if you've got the, the, if you've got the luxury to go and, and take curriculum at a university, do it. If not join the uh, association of fundraising professionals and then just read, just go on Amazon and buy literally every book and read it cover to cover about a dozen times um, before you spend any money. And then, then endeavor, then go for it. And uh, yeah, and then strap in for a couple of years because you're, it, 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 you're not going to raise any money right away. And if you do, <laughs> great yeah. for you. Um, but but typically, they, typically most nonprofits start with a group of wonderful people that, um, like me, said, hey, this is a, this is a problem. We're going to solve it. The world's going to say, yeah, that's a, that's a great thing. And they're going to throw money at me. It doesn't work that way. Well, and in the cannabis space, you can't take donations from cannabis companies with 280E, yeah? So that, I, I've, I've stopped having that discussion. And I've, I've said, talk to your tax professional. And however you want to support us, we will take the check. Um, that's, that's how I've done it because of, the 280E implication. Right. Which is, yeah. Um, that's the Godzilla stomping around the field, without a doubt. Um, but at the same time, but, there's always creative yeah. ways to donate if you want to get it done. Right? You want to yes. contribute? Yes. There, there's, there's ways to do it. There is. And it's not, it's not about the money. It's not, it's not about somebody giving... $2 million. It, it's about the fact that they yeah. gave. And my, okay, so here, a bit of statistics about nonprofits and fundraising. One is eight out of 10 first-time donors only make a gift one time. So that that's horrible because the largest gifts come from the seventh or eighth gift. And so nonprofits spend a lot of time acquiring new donors and they do a terrible job keeping the donors. It's called stewardship, Mm -hmm. showing the donors the impact. Here's how many cups of water we fed to dehydrated people, wells we did, we dug, penguins we cleaned, people we got jobs in cannabis, uh, cats we neutered. Nonprofits, if you show the impact, then donors are have a higher propensity to give again. And then you'll get to that seventh or eighth gift where we've seen many times where someone will make a gift of a hundred or $200 for a number of years. And then they'll be asked, Hey, we've seen that you really support the mission. And would you consider making a gift to our capital campaign so we can build an extra 20 wells? And they go, yeah, absolutely. And they'll cut a check for a hundred thousand dollars. So a way to get to that seventh or eighth gift is stewardship. And that's show the wells, show the cats, show the people working, show the impact. And then people are 74% more likely to make a second gift if they're thanked within 24 hours. So if if you sent us a check for 100 bucks, and I just texted you and I said, hey, Tim, we got your check. You're awesome. Thank you. That would That would increase your likelihood of making a second gift by 74% long-standing statistic in, in philanthropy. And that's the nice thing about nonprofit work is that through through the reporting to the IRS, because everything's transparent, you can just you can see the, the the data sets and the data doesn't lie. So if somebody makes a gift or does anything for you, even just in life, if you thank them immediately, 
they're more likely to do something kind for you again yeah. in the future. Yeah. So those are, those are just some things to to consider going in that I wish that that I knew because I was just an eager beaver and I was calling everybody I knew and just bombing, yeah. you know, because I didn't know what I was sure. doing. So get trained. Cool. What's your uh, favorite strain? You still have a favorite strain? I do. Um, honestly, I'd have to say Night Nurse, or that that was that was the one I grew. Um, that I'm smoking right now. <laughs> I don't even know right now. Uh, I had some buddies come up from Florida, and they got a bunch yeah. of joints, and they didn't want to fly with it. So they just left it. So I just been like grabbing one and smoking it. <laughs> I don't know what it is. That's funny. So, night uh, nurse though, huh? The, the night nurse. Anything that's going to be really like a tranquilizer. Yeah. For some reason, cannabis is a bit of like an upper uh-huh. for me, which I don't particularly enjoy because it, it makes me like uh, yeah. manic and I don't, I don't particularly enjoy that. So something that would be more of like a couch lock or a, a sedative going yeah. to bed hits me where I'm just like, I'm chill. I can go mow the yard, do whatever. And I'm, yeah. I'm good. Cool. What about you? Fatso. So my, my favorite strain altogether is Fatso. It's a, it's a high THC strain can be very high. Uh, and it is in high, like, if I use a lot of it, it can be almost, um, almost hallucinogenic, like Ooh, to me. Which funny. so it's really creative. So I'll I'll almost consult it, right? I'll consult the fatso if I've got a problem to solve, <laughs> you know. And I'm out pacing, and I pace, and I I have a whiteboard. You see my whiteboard behind me. I'll I'll write on the whiteboard. I write out stuff, shit like, and it's uh yeah. I, so I, I always save a little bit. There's a guy who grows it uh, an hour away for the medical market um, who I just and and his particularly uh, Sugar House Select is the brand. Um, Just when he grows it, it's it's the way I don't know. I've become a big fan of that one strain. I am like you. I get I get pretty paranoid and I Mm. sometimes I have to even set a timer on my watch that's like, okay, I didn't have chest pain an hour ago. In two <laughs> hours, if I don't have chest pain, I won't go to the ER. But certainly right now, I think I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. So I get that. Yeah. I get that way with, with uh, sativas. And so for me, I'm same way. I, I like the a little more sedative, uh, chill type experience. Um, I hurt my back in February and I was using it and I realized that when you hurt yourself, you've got to use a lot more. Like if you're really using it for acute pain, you gotta you gotta lay into it pretty heavy. And so I was trying. I was uh, I learned a lot that that period of time. Anyway, um, it, is there where can people go to to connect with you to get more information to get get jobs in in cannabis? Yeah. So the best way to reach me directly is honestly on LinkedIn, Matt Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N-N. I'm, I think I'm, I have an unhealthy obsession with LinkedIn, so I'm on it constantly. The, the best way to get a hold of the organization is to go to R-O-U-R-Cannabis.org and you can sign up for classes when we're running them. Or right now we're just doing one-on-ones and we'll walk you through the process. Everything is no cost. At no point in time will we say, hey, Tim, we need 50 bucks to finish your resume or $200 to do this negotiation training. Everything is no cost because when when someone asks for help, you just help them. And we don't want any barriers, especially one being money, to helping people have access to the more often than not transformative uh, opportunities of finding a new hmm. job. So cool. that's the best way to get hold of us. Cool. Well, thanks, Matt. I, uh, it's been a real pleasure and I hope, honestly, I hope that we are able to continue our conversation and work together. All right, everybody stay safe out there. 